Why do we exist? Were we created with a purpose? Or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to The Universe Next Door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. The Universe Next Door is supported by the C.S. Lewis Society, Trinity College of Florida, and supported by gifts from listeners just like you. Discover more resources and continue the conversation at apologetics.org. And now, your host, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College of Florida, author and speaker, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome to the Universe Next Door, and thank you for joining us. Uh, We are going to be having a lot of fun today talking about crazy weird fossils. But before we do that, I'm going to bring in the expert on crazy weird fossils, and that is Dr. Tom Woodward. How are you? Oh, I'm doing splendidly. I am so thankful for the opportunity to talk about one of my favorite topics. And uh, fossils uh, are a huge plus for the theories of creation and intelligent design. And it's a massive embarrassment. Fossil data tends to be a huge uh, kind of X, big red X over the Darwinian theories of macroevolution. So I'm really thankful for the opportunity to talk about two new discoveries that are coming onto the scene that have been made known recently. Yeah, and what's what's cool about that is it is a problem for Darwinism, but it's also something that's really tangible. Somebody who doesn't know a whole lot about science and intelligence design, they can look at this you know, physical fossil record and say, oh, wow, there's something clearly missing here. Exactly. I remember just like yesterday, I was over just a little bit over a year ago in Moldova, that's a country that was just snuggled in right next to Ukraine, which of course is suffering its own tragic invasion from Russia right now. But um, the, the Moldova state, this kind of sovereign country wedged in between Romania and Ukraine uh, is not known as a kind of like a positive thing, positive place for preaching the gospel because they had Russian imposed propaganda for many decades that taught in the public schools, we now know from fossils that, and from other data, but they would always emphasize fossils from fossils, that evolution is a fact, that there was no planning, there was no foresight, there was no creator. And therefore you can discard the idea of God as so much you know, mythology and legends from uh, centuries past. And so when I went into the university in uh, the north end of Moldova and spoke in some other colleges and universities in the capital city there of Moldova, everywhere I went, I had fossils with me. And guess where people would make a beeline for at the end of my talk? The fossil table. (laughs) (laughs) And they would say, can I touch? And there were certain fossils. I said, yeah, you can pick this up. We had some um, coprolite, which is uh, fossilized, uh, basically dino doo-doo. And so they, they would say, does it, does it smell? I said, no, it doesn't smell. And, <laughs> and so, but they would actually pick up the trilobites and we had some pretty spectacular extinct animals among our fossils. And it was just far too much fun. I said, you know, this fossil appears suddenly in the fossil record. This kind of animal does not show developmental a pathway or transition or any intermediate forms. We don't see step by tiny step, which is the doctrine of Darwinism. We don't see it anywhere in the fossil record. And so that was a, a ton of fun. But today I wanna to turn our direction to, sue, to two fairly recent announcements in the literature. Are we good for uh, crabs and ichthyosaurs? Oh, that second one sounds really interesting. I've heard of crabs. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'll have to explain a little bit what an ichthyosaur, let me go ahead and tackle that one first. So there are, have been known 
since the mid-1800s as they really began to ransack the various geological strata of the Permian and the Cretaceous and the, the Jurassic and Triassic, all those very rich sections of fossil rock, which of course the geological uh, dating system puts those back anywhere from 300 and some million years ago down to uh, the last, according to their standard you know, chronology, the last uh, uh, dinosaurs that were found anywhere in the fossil record died out about 60 million years ago. And that was the end of the Cretaceous. Well, I'm not buying those dates. I'm not trying to propagandize on behalf of those dates. I'm just using them uh, for the purpose of this discussion. Well, in those early strata, they found popping in out of nowhere, and again, huge embarrassment for macro evolution. Um, not, we're not dealing with minor changes. We're dealing with whole new body plans. So these were reptiles, but they're shaped virtually 100% like a state-of-the-art, very advanced uh, fish form. So they have, they have this kind of weird anatomy, which you can see quite clearly in the fossil um, you know, bone structures that are left that we can find in the rocks. And so that they lived in the sea, but they had to come up and breathe like, like whales, but they were not mammals and they were not amphibians. They were true blue reptiles, a whole branch of reptilia. That huge class of reptiles had a separate branch. And these branches, these sub-branches lived in the sea full time. They never crept back up on the land and, and did their thing and danced around. No, they had to live full time in the sea. And so the ichthyosaur has the idea of, of ichthyos is of course the word for fish in, in Greek. And then sore is like the idea of a reptile. So it's like a fish-like reptile. Well, some of the most powerful top experts in creation, some of my dear friends in the realm of creation-oriented paleontologists are experts in the ichthyosaurs. And so when they saw what was discovered, this uh, Symbospondylus youngum, that's the name of it. Uh, that will be on the midterm exam, Nick. Okay. Yeah. Yeah so, yeah, so Simbo, which actually, I, I, I think I have it correct in the pronunciation, Simbo, C-Y-M-B-O, Spondylus, S-P-O, and D-Y-L-U-S, and then the, the second part of the, of the um, species genera name is Youngham, and I, I'm, I'm not finding yet where they get Youngham is, but I think maybe somebody by the name of Young, maybe John Young, Jim Young, or Bill Young, to actually discover the the fossil. But anyway, Symbospondylus youngum is a shocker. Are you ready for this? Yes. It is early in the fossil record. I mean, right there where the other ichthyosaurs pop in, but it is the size of a sperm whale, which could max wow. out easily to 55 to 60 feet. Is that not incredible? Uh, yeah, it sure is. <laughs> yes. So this was the monster ichthyosaur of all time. You could describe it that way. But Symbospondylus, uh, when it was discovered, uh, was the shocker of, of all time, you might say, in ichthyosaur studies. And so um, now, people may say, oh, well, you know, you know we, we know that, you know, whales evolved from land animals. Whales evolved from something like a, a pig, a cow, or a buffalo. And all I can say is good luck with that theory. According to Richard Sternberg of the Discovery Institute, uh, one of the top guys with uh, two earned doctorates, by the way, in evolutionary biology and affiliated studies. Richard Sternberg, formerly of the Smithsonian Institute, 
has said you would need to evolve 50,000, that's his conservative estimate, 50,000 new traits. Each of one would have a guaranteed require for a whole new gene or a whole cluster of genes. But wow. they, they found to modify in one of the recent experiments working with whales, they found that a particular gene required 4 million years just to modify. That's to make a crucial tweak on one side of the the uh, protein produced by that gene. So if it takes conservatively speaking 4 million years just to produce one modified gene, now let's go ahead and grant them, let's be generous, say, well, 4 million years, we'll do it for the whole new gene from scratch, you know, the whole thousand or 2000 digit uh, code on the hard drive. Mm -hmm. Well, then multiply that times 50,000 traits, because yeah. just, just like, you know, the whales require all this massive modification from a land animal, so with the ichthyosaurs. Um, Nick, what do you think about that? Uh, I think that's a really big number. <laughs> and that's <it's> absolutely <laughs> ridiculous to suggest that something could evolve hundreds of times. Uh, you know, the, the earth is here hundreds of times less than, than you'd have exactly. to. I mean, it just doesn't make sense logically. No, I, I agree. I don't think there's any logical way out of this perplexing, um, you know, fix that they're in. And so when, when, you, when you consider the, the new uh, Symbospondylus youngum, this new uh, massive, like oversized, I mean, that's an understatement. I mean, you know, when they found, uh, you know, Gigantosaurus uh, in Argentina and these other huge, like uh, long neck dinosaurs, uh, you know, Apatosaurus, which formerly called Brontosaurus, but from my understanding. Anyway, those are like equivalent, maybe if, if just to compare the discovery of this new oversized ichthyosaur. Well, that's bad enough, but let me talk about what they found in Calicamera perplexa. Are you ready for our next weird fossil of the, of the week? Yes. Okay, well, let me launch in, uh, just kind of blunder into the fossil crab world. Now, we're, we're used to finding strange creatures. Uh, this is um, the kind of like in the journal Cell, they spoke of the strangeness of this strange crabs uh, creature. This, this species, when it was discovered, just caused people to just uh, enter into kind of a biological shock of their life. Uh, one description in, in the very prestigious journal Cell says, quote, the remarkable visual system of a Cretaceous crab was part of this animal. And it was said to be so bizarre that it has forced a redefinition of what a crab is. So wow. uh, Nick, you're familiar with the, the famous platypus of Australia, right? Yes. So what's strange about a platypus? That it has, uh, what is it, webbed feet? Yeah, it has webbed feet and it has fur, right? And a beak. And, but it lays eggs. <laughs> and it lays eggs, yeah, it just... <laughs> And it, and it has and it has a duck bill. So this is a pop quiz, and and yet it has you know all these other features. And the mammary gland, gland, glands are so weird; it just secretes milk, and the baby uh, little platypus, uh, you know, pups have to lick the fur of mommy. There are no you know teats to speak of, and so the they they've said this creature, this amazing new, and I'm hoping I'm pronouncing it right. Calicamera perplexa. I love the end. 
part, the second word of the species name is perplexa. And they've chose that on purpose because it was so perplexing uh, to the supposedly 95 million year old, year old mid-Cretaceous uh, crab. Now, let me just tell you what's really interesting. So the authors of this article believe that, and I'm quoting directly from, from their, their statement, the true crabs are one of the few groups of arthropods, okay, that's the whole class that has bugs, insects, and spiders, and all those good things. They're one of the few groups of arthropods to evolve several types of compound eyes. But the problem is they never actually have evidence of simple eyes that are getting more complex along this pathway to develop a compound eyes, uh, the, those compound eyes. They just appear suddenly, are you ready for this? Mm -hmm down in the lowest level of the Cambrian strata. Wow. So you have a huge conundrum here because even Anomalocaris, the famous champion, you know, the kind of the monster of the deep back in the Cambrian, most of the little Cambrian animals running around, very complex, tremendous variety. It's like an Amazon jungle of the sea. But the Cambrian animals, uh, mostly were three or four inches at the max, maybe usually one or two inches. And the anomalocaris could be five to seven feet when fully grown. Wow. And so its compound eyes were very appropriately large compared to its body. Its eyes would grow to be the dimension, we might say half inch to a full inch wide with all those lenses, those hundreds of miniature lenses fit into the surface. So that's, that's bad enough. But imagine that you have a crab swimming around, in this uh, case of the Calicamera perplexa, it's, uh, it's called uh, you know, um, kind of the most bizarre because its eyes are oversized. One of the descriptions of this strange creature, so, uh, just almost like was just bubbling over with excitement, but almost uh, trembling with, with fear as to what they're finding. Uh, he says, uh, although the ocular anatomy, that is the anatomy of the eyes is preserved in exquisite detail in several specimens. They, they found several of these guys. And it demonstrates the unique visual system in this crab, quote, it does not reveal the origin and evolution of the many types of compound eyes found in extant crabs. In other words, it doesn't give us the slightest hint or the most modest help in understanding how these complex crab eyes could evolve in the first place. And that's mm -hmm. what we're interested in, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, and I think people in higher education, I, I think they understand this because you have Stephen Jay Gold, for example, with his punctuated equilibrium, which is basically, we can't explain how these things slowly evolved. So it was just magic. They jumped from this thing to this thing with no evidence uh, or, yeah. or no, or very little evidence. Yeah, they, 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 they almost like uh, draw, you know, your gullibility to a breaking point. Right. It's like the bio, the biological version of the God of the gaps. Or we don't know, yeah. so it just happened quickly. Or Rudyard Kipling's Just So stories. Yeah, how, right. How, how the leopard got its spots, you know, how the camel got its hump. Uh, mm. I always loved reading those. I actually read the camel, how the camel got its hump to one of my grandkids and uh not too long ago and they and they looked at me and they said that's a funny story but no one believes that 
<laughs> and I was thinking, well, let me tell you another funny story called macroevolution. <laughs> we're, we're instructed in school to believe that. You're right. <laughs> but, but let me just re read to you just a, a couple more words. I, I just, I just am loving this too much. The researchers from Yale, you know, that was my, that was our, our opposition. I went to Princeton, so, but I was accepted at Yale, so I'll just give them a doff of the hat. They're known for being very prestigious, but also academically, you know, reputable university. The researchers from Yale University retrieved an abundance of hard evidence uh, from the eyes of this organism. And, and this is, this is again, straight from their report. You know, it's just amazing what they wrote down. They found detailed preservation of large compound eyes and soft tissues, including the optic lobe. In other words, they recovered the actual part of the brain that operated those massive, huge, oversized eyes. Now, for comparison, imagine that I had eyes that, you know, it not, not pretend that for, for just a moment, my eyelids are, are, you know, transparent or they're not there. Okay, that's kind of weird. That would be kind of scary looking at my mm -hmm. eyeballs. And now make the eyeballs as big as my entire head from the top of my forehead to the to the edge of my chin. No, I would have nightmares. <laughs> I don't want to produce any nightmares. Now, now take that same explosion of the eye size and put it on the front end of a crab so that the two eyes are the first things you see because they just bulge out like gigantic globes. That's how bizarre and oversized this um they, they call it the platypus of crabs like where do those eyes got come from yeah and, and, they, and they say that this uh, discovery of this information you know this this optic lobe uh together with information on on this uh you know structure and the growth rates uh, it permits a comparison with the diversity of, of crabs and current currently living extant crabs and shows that this guy was an active visual swimmer. In other words, he didn't just sit on the bottom. He was on the hunt. He was looking for other critters to, to see, you know, far away and zoom in on and gobble up. Mm. And so the soft tissue evidence um, is very striking because it shows that perplexa, uh, once the evidence of this complex eye structure appears and it's it's advanced in the past and it hasn't gotten any better. I mean, you don't have any big eye crabs or, or shrimp or anything even close to this after that. So you have the largest and most sophisticated and most advanced uh, eyes in the distant past. And though, so the, um, basically the, the evidence uh, coming in just from these two discoveries is quite embarrassing, but um, and I know we just have a few minutes left. Uh, do we have time for me to kind of get get us ready for next week in our special interview? Oh yeah, we got about five and a half minutes. Oh, okay. so. so, well, I just want to mention that um, we are having with a, with us next week uh, not an expert on fossils, you know, although he is an expert on the past, he's really an historian of the powerful work, the writing, and the entire life of C.S. Lewis himself. And so we are thrilled to announce that Hal Poe, who is uh, and kind of um, connected with the uh, Edgar Allan Poe family, it's kind of a funny story he can maybe share it at the beginning, 
But mm. Al, Hal Poe, a uh, Charles Colson professor of apologetics uh, and, and historical studies at Union University that's up in Jackson, Tennessee, he will be with us. Uh, we'll have at least one uh, program, and uh, we may actually explore, we may take a couple weeks to explore his new book, The Making of C.S. Lewis, and, um, and it's the story of C.S. Lewis from the time he got back um, from his um, terrible uh, injuries that he sustained on the front lines of World War I in 1918, all the way through the end of World War II, uh, 1945, including the period when we, he was still struggling mightily with, does God exist? Is there anything to this Christian message? Should I believe anything that my friend uh, Tolkien is telling me, you know, as he would meet these Christian scholars at Oxford? Yeah, because he himself was an atheist and I, and I think that, that we should put the word out, you know, to the whole uh, network of the Universe Next Door listeners and say, tune in next week, especially. And uh, like I say, it, it may uh, turn out to be such a rich interview, we may stretch it over two weeks. So are you excited? Yeah, that's going to be awesome. I remember uh, we had, a, it might have been in school actually a while back. He was a really interesting guy. He came on to talk yes. about we, Lewis. Yeah, we actually had a kind of a um, C.S. Lewis and the evidence for God um, course we did, I think it was in 2020. Yeah, and, and we actually brought him in for one of those evenings. Uh, the, I, I remember at, at the end, I had hit uh, record of, of that particular Zoom. And at the end, they said, recording did not happen. And I felt like, no. oh, no. Man. But, but uh, we're going to have a very special time. And uh, we're, we're considering also uploading it as, as a visual uh, Zoom file to our web page, but for sure we're 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 planning and, and looking forward to having Hal Poe with us. By the way, he is going to tell the story of of C.S. Lewis as a British Secret Service agent, you know, MI6. Oh yeah, like we touched upon. Uh, I think it was last week's episode. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, so that that will be quite um, something to look forward to, uh, as we said already last week that the story is just been confirmed and he told me when I was setting up our taping uh, when he when we meet with him next week uh, he said quote unquote yes the uh, the people at the MI6 as I have maintained contact with them are telling me that you got to be careful about this because we can't reveal anything <laughs> yeah even so long later <laughs> exactly so uh, but that's that's uh, something that I just think we should you know spread around spread the word that Halpo, uh, author of this, um, hopefully a, it'll be a trilogy, three books. But the second book, which came out just a few months ago, he's going to be giving the highlights, including the untold story of Operation Iceland, as oh, as cool. it was working with the British MI6. I think it's pretty crazy, wonderful. But yeah, uh, I, I, thank you for I, all your help. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd mentioned last week, it's just really cool to hear these stories about C.S. Lewis that uh, that you wouldn't have known otherwise. I mean, I know you've had an opportunity to go over to to his old house in England and meet his stepson, Doug Gresham and everything. So that's yeah. just really cool to hear the stuff you can't just find out in the public. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's it's awesome when you meet and, and even the, some of the funny things I, I said that Doug Gresham, you know, had said that, you know, uh, the, the accusation made against his mother that uh, his mom, you know, married C.S. Lewis for the uh, financial advantage. And, and, and Hal Poe said, oh, that's funny. He says, if you consider that theory, Lewis 
had had a, a state of, of degraded, um, in other words, care for his house, the kilns was such poor shape, she would know she, there's no money in there to marry into because he was, <laughs> he was such a, a kind of, uh, he gave away all the funds, practically almost everything he ever earned, he gave away for Christian ministry and to help the poor. It's an amazing story. Yeah, it really is. I, I was actually just talking about that recently with somebody, but join us when we have on Halpo. It's going to be awesome. I can tell you from experience, he is like a C.S. Lewis encyclopedia. So thank you for joining us. We hope you uh, enjoy learning about crazy weird fossils. We hope that they are uh, going to be a reminder to you of how great God is and how nobody else could replicate what he does on his own. So thank you for listening, and we'll see you back here next week on The Universe Next Door. You've been listening to The Universe Next Door with Dr. Tom Woodward, sponsored by the C.S. Lewis Society and Trinity College of Florida and supported through the gifts of listeners just like you. To gather resources, continue the conversation, and support The Universe Next Door with your financial gifts, go to apologetics.org. That's apologetics.org. And join us again next time as we continue to seek the truth about life, faith, and worldview in The Universe Next Door. Thank you.